I did something really stupid while I was preparing the sermon. Who said they're not surprised? I, I, and, and I'm going to. I wanted to tell you about my favorite uh, youth trip that I took, a high adventure trip down in the uh, Big Bend, Rio Grande Valley. And, and I thought, you know, I'm going to count the number of camps, retreats, um, speaking engagements, all, all of ski trips, mission trips. And I got to 85 and I decided I'm just going to quit, you know. Uh, that's way too many. I, in fact, one year, I, uh, right out of seminary, I did, I did nine retreats, mission trips. Uh, they were not nine retreats, nine mission trips, but all together, there were nine overnight trips, four of which were longer than a week. And I just thought, that was really stupid. I feel really tired. Um, now, you don't think that's funny. I think it's really, really funny in my own life um, because here's the deal. I enjoyed every minute of every one of those. But my favorite was going down to the Rio Grande Valley and going through the Santa Elena Canyon, which is a high adventure trip. Actually, it was a group of, of teenagers. We uh, did some mission work in El Paso, came back to the Big Bend, we had hired a, a guide company that would make sure that we didn't kill ourselves on the white water. We, these are not canoes, but the big, huge rafts that they use, okay? It takes three days to get through the Santa Elena Canyon. Have any of you Boy Scouts done Santa Elena? Yeah, you've done. Isn't it fun? Yeah. Isn't, isn't it scary? Eh, a little bit, yeah. And the first day... They do a big training. And here's what the guy said to us um, the first day. He said, these waters can be dangerous. Listen to every word I tell you. We will navigate. Paddle when we tell you to, to, tell you to paddle. Stop when we say stop. Never, never take your life jacket off. If we let the waters just take us, the currents will crash us into the rocks it can be very dangerous and sometimes deadly. I looked around and those kids' eyes were about this big around. You know. Now, frankly, he was exaggerating. It wasn't nearly that dangerous. I would have never taken a group of about 40 teenagers on a, on a trip like that. But it was absolutely incredible uh, going through the Santa Elena Canyon and, and experiencing that camping out on the shore they would set up lean-tos, and this place was first class. I mean, they brought the food. They fixed steaks every night. Um, the funniest thing is I had a 16-year-old girl that was, had, you know, that kind of frizzy red hair, okay? Now, we told them ahead of time where we were going, the circumstances. She walks up to me the first morning with a hair straightener in one hand and a hair dryer in the other, and she says, and what am I going to do with these? And I said, Michelle, I told you there's no electricity out here. And then she grabs her hand and says, then what am I going to do with this? <laughs> and it was frizzy the whole time. So um, it was great. And here's the deal in the lead-in. In the same way, we cannot go with the flow of the culture 
and still live a Jesus-shaped life. We will end up on the rocks. Living for Christ requires intentional navigating. And oftentimes it is not on our own, but it's under the direction of those who have walked the walk, who have studied the scriptures, who have prepared themselves to lead others in the way of Christ. As God's people, we will sometimes stand out because of our actions, and it takes courage to go against the flow. And yet, the Jesus-shaped life is a different mindset than the ways of the world. We will be questioned at work, at school, and even by our families. And yet, it is worth it. The Jesus-shaped life, um, it, it is beyond our greatest expectations. The promises that are before us are incredible. And so we're going to look at the Jesus-shaped mind, the Jesus-shaped life, and what it means for us in growing in the presence of Jesus Christ this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength, our redeemer. May these words be your words, O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Sometimes it's fun to play the what-if game, or if only. Do you ever play that game? If only I had a different job. If only I had more friends. If only I had more money. If only I had more time. I, I play that game a lot. Anybody else play that game? If only I had less stress. Well, that's a pretty huge one. If only I had better health. If only. Here's what we know, um, and I don't know where they get these statistics, but 44% of those who win the lottery are broke within five years. 44%, almost half of those who win the lottery are broke um, within five years. Makes you want to go out and buy a lottery ticket, doesn't it? And, and one-third of those who win the lottery declare bankruptcy. Why? Their circumstances changed, but their thinking didn't. They got a lot of money, but they ended up right where they started because they didn't change the way they thought about money. Paul's letter is about a change of mind. Now, it's divided up into four sections, and there are those who have different opinions about why Paul writes this letter, who it's to. I happen to fall into the camp that it's more generally written for, <clears throat> for distribution among the churches. He writes it probably from Rome. Um, and he writes it to outline his basic theology of salvation and the change that results because of it. Because of it. First section is about salvation by faith. It is about justification by faith and by faith alone. Second section is his um, <clears throat> outline of what, what it means, the assurance, the promises of God's salvation. Third is his defense, particularly against the Jews. 
who are attacking the presence of Jesus Christ and the change and salvation that Jesus can bring. And then the fourth section that begins in chapter 12 is a change in mind and a change, therefore, in behavior. It, uh, basically, what Paul is doing is he's saying, okay, we're saved by faith, by faith alone. And here is the promise of how much God loves us and why he does for this. And here is a defense against those who attack. And now, therefore, this is what it means. And for Paul, unless you connect justification by faith with a change in mind and behavior, it's not going to last. John Wesley, John Wesley called that sanctification. That we are, by grace, we are saved through faith, but by sanctification and the Holy Spirit, we continue to grow in that faith to be more like Jesus. Now, Romans 12. I'm just going to deal with the first two verses. And, uh, I mean, we could spend three years just looking at the end of Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. We're going to deal with just two verses. Then I want to go back to the passage that, that Cindy um, read from, uh, from Matthew chapter 6. Um, it's one of the best-known passages in the Bible, verses 1 and 2. Uh, it is a description of the divine change. And as I read through it, and hopefully you have your Bibles in front of you, I want you to circle four words that we're going to come back and look at that gives us some indication of what this change means. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present. Number one is to present. Your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be, number two, transformed by the, number three, renewing of your, number four, minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, so that you may be shaped like Jesus. So let's look at the first one. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Here the Greek word, peritisimi, translated present, more literally means, hear this, more literally means to stand close. Now in, in our language, when we present something, we're giving someone that, and it, it reads as if we are to give to Jesus our lives as a living sacrifice. In the Greek, what he's saying is that we are to move closer and closer because that proximity to Jesus makes a difference. To present our lives is to move closer to Jesus. And then as you read on here where it says, but be transformed, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. The Greek word metamorsophu, which is from which we get our word metamorphosis, which means a change from one thing to another, translated transformed, literally, also means to change after being with into what is intended. In other words, 
the closer that you get in, in metamorpho, the closer to, that you get to what you want to be in proximity, you will be transformed into that which you are in the presence. He's just, he just, Paul is just confirming that this closeness to Christ, this moving ourselves into proximity of Jesus creates a metamorphosis, a change within us. And, and then he uses this phrase, by the renewing of your minds. Renewing anachosis, which translated renewing, more literally means to be renovated and remade like you would renovate a house, which means sometimes tearing down and rebuilding, reconstructing. Typically, it's used to describe that which will, is, um, is not made completely new, but like new, okay? And when Paul uses the word nous, translated mind, Paul uses this word in his letters to describe that part of the mind that sees as Jesus sees. By the renewing of your minds. In other words, that as we get close, as we um, present, so we are made more to be like in order to be remodeled to see as Jesus sees. Or to put it another way, I've kind of done my own little, uh, um, not really a translation, it's more of a, uh, just kind of a, a rewriting here. The closer we get to Christ and resist the temptation to be like the ways of the world, we literally take on the qualities of Christ. The closer we get to Christ, we are remade to be like Jesus and see the world as Jesus sees the world. The closer we get to Christ and resist the temptation to be like the ways of the world, we literally take on the qualities of Jesus. The closer we get to Jesus, we are remade to be like Jesus and see the world as Jesus sees the world. Simply put, living closer to Christ in faith changes our thinking and the way we see the world. Changes our thinking. You know, we are saved by faith through Jesus Christ, not any of our own doing, but a gift of God. We are saved. But to truly be changed is to truly be like Jesus is to change our minds. Transformation comes by the changing of our minds, not the changing of our circumstances. And if you change your circumstances without changing your mind, sooner or later you're just going to end up right back in the same place. And the mistake that many Christians make, particularly new Christians, is that get this rush of, of, of experiencing salvation, experiencing the mountaintop, experiencing the forgiveness, experiencing the freedom, and they think that everything is going to be different, but they don't make any, any changes in the way that they're thinking. They continue to think in the, in, in the ways of the world, and slowly but surely their life returns to the way that it was, and they wonder, what happened? 
Did this faith really make any difference in my life? Unless we take those steps. Unless we change our mind, our circumstances will never change. A Jesus-shaped life requires a Jesus-shaped mind. Now, thoughts are hard to control. Um, and part of the reason for that is because we ingrain thoughts as habits. And we ingrain thoughts as habits so that we can kind of save brain matter. For example, when I come in the door, I put my keys and my wallet, my phone, all in the same place so I know where to find it. Um, everything in <clears throat> where I live has a place, so I don't have to think about it. I'm, I'm oh, so OCD. My keys are always in this pocket, and my wallet is always in this pocket. Anybody else like that? I mean, yeah, see? Because I don't have to think about it. If I need my wallet, I just stick it in this pocket, you know. And, and if I stick my hand in this pocket, my keys are in there, I go, did I lose my wallet? And my wallet's in my other pocket, you know, or it's in this pocket or, you know. We create habits. And, and the problem with habits is that we don't think about habits. Some habits are constructive to the Jesus-shaped life. But other habits are not conducive to the Jesus-shaped life. And when... Um, when these thoughts or habits are not from God, or they are in conflict, the Bible calls these strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have a divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, no matter where you are spiritually on this, there are strongholds in all of our lives that we need to identify and to uh, attack and begin to make the process of changing. And they can't be done all at once, maybe one at a time, but anything that stands in the way of us moving in that in that proximity and closeness to Jesus so that the metamorphosis can take place in our whole life, that is a stronghold. A stronghold is a lie that we believe. It is any mindset, value, teaching, or philosophy that opposes the truth of God. Something like, God really doesn't love me like he loves other people. That's a lie. If I do what God wants, I'll be miserable. That's a lie. God doesn't hear me when I pray. That's absolutely a lie. I can never forgive myself. I will never amount to anything. If something bad is going to happen, it's going to happen to me. Those are strongholds that undermine 
the power of God and the presence of what God wants to do in our lives. And every sin is some lie that we believe and they are always untrue. Always. But Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free to be mentally, spiritually, healthy and free we need to demolish those strongholds. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 5, we started earlier, if you'll remember, now he says, we demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Paul knows what's going on here. He knows the difficulty that we all face in our lives in truly changing our minds so that we can get closer and closer to our Lord to be shaped like him. So, what do we do? First, our thoughts obey Christ when we stop following the crowd and start following God's truth. The courage to live differently than others comes from thinking differently than others. And there are some things that everybody knows that just aren't true. But we keep repeating them over and over. There are lots of things about God and life that everyone knows. And they need to be replaced with God's truth. That's why... The, the true way to take, hold a, take down a stronghold is to pray. Every time we pray, a stronghold gets weaker. To read scripture, every time we read scripture or we hear scripture read, a stronghold gets weaker. Every time that we are in worship and sing the songs of faith and hear the scripture read and participate together in, in the prayers and, and in the songs of faith, strongholds get weaker. Every time that we join in a, in a core group or a small group or a Sunday school class, when we have a conversation with a Christian brother or sister, strongholds get weaker. As we practice our faith so those strongholds get weaker until they finally break. Second, test our thinking with Scripture. The very reason why we lift up Scripture is because it is a test for our lives. Because there's a lot of stuff going around in our world these days. And if we but test it by the Holy Scriptures... We know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. We know the difference between what is true and what is false. Test it. For example, and I know, well, anyway, I'm, I'm going to talk about money for a minute, okay? Money is security, so keep all you can. Sounds good to me, doesn't it? Cindy, what do you think? Money is security. Keep all you can. That's not what the Bible says. That's not, in fact, the Bible says in many ways just the opposite. I mean, money is the way in which we, you know, in our economy, we exist. 
but it is not life. Jesus says this, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. There's no U-Haul that you can take to heaven. That's, um, that's my addition to the scripture. Um, where moths and vermins destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Money is an opportunity to be generous, to be helpful, to be a blessing, to support our families, to support ourselves. But we are not meant to be uh, the wealthiest of the wealthiest. We are meant to be those who to be a blessing to others. And we need to know God's truth, not just about money, but about all things in order to live it. Third is worry. Um, it's my opinion, and I, I could go on and on about about ways that we can deal with strongholds. But to me, worry is one of the biggest strongholds in our society today. People worry about everything. I, I came home one day from, from college and my grandmother was telling me this story about this couple that was having trouble in their marriage and I realized she was talking about a soap opera. <laughs> she was living that soap opera. She was, I mean... She just needed to worry about something. It is a part of the human condition. And the problem is worries drag us back to old thinking, to the what-if game. The human tendency is to think that the worst will happen when we're faced with the unknown. And these worries can drag us back to the patterns and can begin to, we begin to take steps away from Jesus because the world looks better than the way of Jesus until we are shaped less and less like the one who made us. God wants the best for our lives and will never give up on us. Never. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses worry when he speaks um, to our worries concerning, concerning the things of his life. Cindy read it for you. I, I think that all of us should memorize it. You know, he talks about what we shall eat, what we shall drink, what we shall wear. He talks about the birds of the air and, and how, how, how worry can, can just be a cancer. It can be a virus that eats at the very core of our faith. And he ends with this, but strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. When we worry, let us look for the things of God. When we worry, let us turn to the scriptures. When we worry, let us pick up our phone and talk to a brother or sister in Christ. When we worry, let us lean upon each other. For when we worry, we really don't have to. It is not what God wants for us. 
no matter how deeply ingrained worry or a pattern or a stronghold or habit, God will never let us go. For we can be changed as we move closer and closer and closer to Christ. So we shall be shaped like him. For the closer we get to Christ and resist temptation, to be <clears throat> to resist temptation to be like the ways of the world, we literally take on the qualities of Christ. The closer we get to Christ, we are remade to be like him and to see the world as Jesus sees the world. To live like Jesus, we need to think like Jesus, to be shaped like Jesus, to think differently than the rest of the world. Will you?